you say with me, I want to burn. Well, if you want to burn, you read letters that burn, and they'll get you lit. Amen? So let's lift our hands to the Lord. Father, we just thank you tonight for the Word of God. This is your Word, Lord, your sacred Word, your preserved Word, your faithful Word, your inerrant Word. And we approach it, Lord, with honor and respect, and we thank you for it, Father. We pray that you'll open our ears, our eyes, our hearts to receive the Word tonight. And Lord, change us, rearrange us, renovate us, renew us, restore us to a lively hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, burn in Jesus. Amen. How many of you liked that prayer time last week? Wasn't that great? Man, I'll tell you. I walked away going, I'm almost tempted to go ahead and just switch and teach the rest of the Lord's Prayer and pray for many Wednesday nights in a row. I mean, that kind of prayer. And uh, if I don't do it now, and I don't think I'm going to, I'm going to do it in the future where we just do an extended prayer. Wednesday nights. Because we need to be praying for our country, for ourselves, for our church. I'll tell you. So tonight, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, the second ch- uh, half of the chapter. If you have your Bibles with you, if you don't, you know, I used to say a lot of things as a younger preacher. I used to say, if you don't have your Bible with you in church, you might as well have walked in in your underwear. That's what I used to say. Seriously. I'm not saying that anymore, although I just did. But come with your Bible, because we're going to learn the Bible. All right? So... um, Since it's been a while, we had all kinds of interruptions, the ice and various things since we were last here with this. Quickly recapping, 1 Peter is all about comforting you and me. It's the letter of comfort. Comfort for the saints. Who was Peter's target audience? Who did he have in mind? The church that had been scattered under the persecutions of Nero. Nero was a monster. He was a terrible individual. If you remember, I told you that he would take, he he set a fire that burned in Rome and burned many things down in Rome. The fire was his fault, but he blamed it on Christians. And he would arrest them, cover them in pitch, put them on a stake, and light them on fire to light up his garden, and they would burn to death this way. This was Nero. He's a monster. He was responsible for the martyrdom of Paul and Peter. I don't want that on my resume when I face God. Right? And many Christians were martyred under Nero. He took his own life, I believe it was at 32 years old. No surprise there. Surely your mind, by the time you've done all those things, has become a torture chamber of guilt and horrible specters and memories and uh, depression and whatnot. So it's not no surprise to me that he did. But it was during his persecution, Peter wrote this. And it was to comfort you and me. And he does it by reminding us, and I'm going to say calibrating our faith to be focused on God. And he's going to remind us of several things. Matter of fact, Peter is known as the apostle of remembrance. 
because he always uses the phrase, I want to remind you. Let me remind you. Can I remind you? Have I reminded you? Oh, let me remind you again, right? He was the apostle of remembrance. You see that in both of his letters, I want to remind you. He was always taking us back to the basics, focused on Christ, the cross, faith in God, how we were saved, <clears throat> saved, all the important things. So last time, we covered the first nine verses of 1 Peter that focused on your salvation. Verse 9 reads, receiving the end of your faith. What's the end of your faith? The salvation of your soul. That's the end of your faith. That's, the, the, that's what your faith will ultimately and finally deliver to you, the salvation of your soul. Well, that's good enough for me. Amen? Now, this time we're going to talk about two things in the second half, your Bible and your sanctification. Uh, a lot of Christians don't even know what it means to be sanctified. We're going to see what it is tonight. Uh, but starting with verse 10, let's read it. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ who was in them. Now notice, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. And it was the Spirit of God indicated certain things. When he testified, he being the Holy Ghost, he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So notice, the Holy Ghost testified within the prophets of the Messiah and the work he would do to redeem our souls. So they were moved by this truth. They saw it coming before it ever arrived. Now, although God himself moved the Old Testament writers by the Holy Spirit to write what they did, they still desired to understand the full import of what God was showing them they didn't understand everything about what they were writing. They wanted to understand more. Like, when, when is this one coming? Am I going to get to see him? How long will it be? What all will he do? What will he look like, be like, sound like? They wondered as they were moved to write the wonders of the coming Messiah. The Holy Spirit did not ignore their desire, but he did overrule it. Because they, they wrote these things not fully understanding all the repercussions of what they wrote. Amen? Because all scripture is given how? By inspiration of God. Come on, everybody. It's not just any book. There's no other book like the Bible in the whole world. Never has been, never will be. It's the eternal word of God. And so by divine revelation, the Holy Spirit imparted to a variety of holy men of old, 40 in all, truths about God, sin, salvation, the future. He moved on them to write about it. But when they put their thoughts on paper, they did so in words the Holy Spirit himself supplied. Amen as Peter himself tells us in 2 Peter 1.21. Now, what did they prophesy about? We're talking Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Habakkuk. Don't ever name your kid Habakkuk. Okay? But Habakkuk, all of them. Obadiah, all of them. Okay? So 
By divine revelation, he moved on holy men of old. But what did they prophesy about? The grace that would come to you. Way down the tunnel of time, they wrote things that would, were centuries away from them. And when they put their thoughts on paper, it was what the Spirit supplied. He gave them the words. They, from Genesis to Revelation, salvation highlights the pages. What's the Bible about? It's about Jesus. What about Jesus? The salvation that he would bring, that he did bring, and how he's coming back again. All right? It's all about Jesus. Genesis to Revelation, stem to stern, the Bible is about Jesus. Okay? The prophets saw it all coming, not just for Jews, but Gentiles as well. How many Gentiles in here? Well, better question, how many Jews in here? Anybody of Jewish blood? Nobody. Aren't you so glad, oh Gentiles, that he died for you too? All right? Say, well, who's a Gentile? Anybody that's not a Jew? You're a Gentile. All right. And while the prophets had a basic grasp of the plan of salvation, they knew he was going to be Messiah, Redeemer, that the Christ would suffer for mankind's sins. Uh, there was a lot they didn't fully grasp. And they wanted to understand the timing that the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing to. When is this momentous person going to show up on the stage of history? They never did understand it. God left them in the dark on the when of his plan. So that's not fair. They wrote about him and some of them were martyred for him. That's okay. Listen, I don't know everything. You don't know everything. There are certain things we're in the dark about right now. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I wish, I don't know if I wish I did or not. There are certain things that's good that you're in the dark. I don't want to know the day I'm going to die. Do you? No. Do you? No. I just know one day I'm going to die unless the rapture happens. But I don't, know, I don't want to know when. Thank God I'm in the dark about it. Lord, don't tell me that. Um, verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you How'd they preach the gospel to them? By what? By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now look at somebody else that was curious about it. Things which angels desire to look into. So not only did the prophets want to fully understand what they were seeing, but so did the angels. Peter mentions here the disappointment of the prophets who realized that the things they were seeing were not for their day. I see it coming, but I'm not going to experience it. So they died in faith. What does it say in Hebrews? These all, talking about the prophets and all the Old Testament saints, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, God having provided something better for us, the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, that they without us should not be made perfect. Okay? So they died in faith. So watch this. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, the, the redemption and the covering of that blood was retroactive to them. Because they died in faith. What would they, would they have faith in? The Messiah that was coming. We have the faith in the Messiah that has come. But they had their faith in the Messiah that was coming. And so when 
he died. That's why the Bible says in Matthew, I read it this morning in my devotional, Matthew says when Jesus gave up the ghost and died and said it is finished, a lot of the Old Testament saints came out of the grave. And they were walking around Jerusalem. I don't know which ones, but Isaiah, Jeremiah. Hey, everybody, thanks for reading my writings all these centuries. Okay? But why did they come out? Why were they resurrected? Because they died in faith, not having received the promise. It was waiting for the shed blood of Christ. But when he said it is finished, they, they received retroactive, total forgiveness of their sins and redemption through the same shed blood. Okay? So, in Genesis 3.15, Old Testament prophecy contained... I'm sorry, let me back up. From the beginning, Old Testament prophecy contained this same kind of time lapse. How many of you have ever realized, and I'm sure all of you, God's timing ain't yours? Nine and a half times out of ten. Right? So, these Old Testament prophets and their prophecies had a time lapse. For instance, Abraham hoped to possess the promised land per God's promise, but it would be 400 years before his seed possessed it. Four centuries went by before God's promise that your seed will possess the promised land. Four centuries elapsed before it happened. In Genesis 3.15, which I call the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, the first prophecy of a coming Messiah was given. Yet it would be many centuries, even millennia, uh, before God sent Jesus in the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4. Jesus came in the fullness of time when it was time for God's timing to happen. Jesus was sent. But the prophecy had come millennia before that. So then the Old Testament prophets saw clearly that many of their prophecies belonged to ages other than theirs, and they laid the foundation on which the apostles, the prophets, and the teachers of the church age built. What's the church built on? The prophets and the apostles. That's what the church is built on. Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So this church, every church, the real church, the universal church of Christ, it's built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. It's done. Everything we need to know about church, it's in the Bible. How to build it, it's in the Bible. And, and so, there, so I'm going to say it again. There's no capital A apostles now. If you want to play with words and say, well, I'm an apostle, okay, because all it means is sent one. Okay, But as far as capital A, the ones that were called of God to lay the foundation of the church and write the New Testament, there's no more of them. How many of you can say, I'm sent? I mean, I've started three churches in my life. I guess I could say I'm an apostle, but don't ever call me that. Because I was a sent one, but I'm not a capital A apostle. Because the 12 were chosen by Jesus to lay the foundation of the church. Capital A Apostle. A lot of little A Apostles running around. Anybody that wants to put Apostle in front of their name, I wonder about them immediately. Because I don't need a title. I don't care about a title. 
are you with me? I'm an apostle, I'm a prophet. Well, good for you. But you know what? I don't need the title. Yeah, servants. Evangelist, I'm okay with that. Pastor, great. But I don't need three titles in front of my name. And I'm throwing that out. That's free. Let me move on. Peter ends verse 12 mentioning the desire of the angels. Isn't this something? Which things the angels desire to look into? Angels have always been interested in what God is doing. Amen? From the creation to Abraham and Jacob to Israel's deliverance from Egypt to heralding the birth of John the Baptist and heralding the birth of our Lord Jesus to ministering to the Lord in the wilderness all the way into the coming apocalypse, which is loaded with angels, angels have and will again play key roles in our history. I'm going to, you know what? I believe if I read my Bible right, uh, the Bible says the angels of the Lord encamp round about those that fear the Lord. So I believe if we could see what God sees in this place right now, there are angels. Now, I don't worship them, I don't look for them, I don't pray to them, none none of that, but they're there. They're there. And you know what? They're curious. They're curious about the work of Christ. They have curiosity. They have have minds, infinite. It would probably blow us away. One one mini-angel would put us all on our face (laughs) if he showed up here, right? Forget... Gabriel, Michael, no, no, just a little low-end angel. We're on our face. They are mighty. They're powerful. They have brilliant minds, and they are curious about the work of salvation that has happened to us. That's what it says. No doubt about it, they watched in awe as the Son of God stepped off his throne on high to descend to a small planet in a distant galaxy, to be born and become a member of the human race. They wanted to understand it. And they longed to fully grasp what God is up to in his redemptive plan for mankind even now. Things angels desire to look into. So the word of God you hold in your hand is filled with prophecy about your salvation. Amen? Amen, amen. Now, let's talk about your sanctification. Say with me, I'm saved. Thank God I'm saved. Can we just take a minute and lift our hands and say, thank you, Jesus, I'm saved. Thank you that I'm born again. Thank you that you touched me and filled me and delivered me from hell to heaven, from death to life, from lost to found, from blind to sight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Can we give him a clap offering here tonight? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now we move to your sanctification. Peter focuses first on God's character and how his own holiness requires us to live a holy life. Look at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now following verse 12, he seems to be saying, live clean. The angels are watching. Both Paul and the writer of Hebrews use the same argument. Seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what are the witnesses? Well, it might be 
Those that have gone before us, it might be. But I really believe included are the angels, a great cloud of witnesses that, that desire to look into our salvation, understand it better. The word for gird up, he says, gird up the loins of your mind, is a Greek word meaning no slackness or looseness. And it points to your thought life. Okay? All of our mental powers, our thoughts, should focus on the imminent revelation or the return of Jesus Christ. He says, gird up the, lo- gird up, gird up the loins of your mind. Get a hold of your thoughts. Guide your thoughts heavenward. If we, since we are dead with Christ, let us focus on the things above, not on things of the earth. For we are dead and our life is hidden with Christ and God, Colossians writes. So all of our thoughts, as much as possible, everything that is true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report, if there be any virtue and any praise, think, think, steer your thoughts on those things, Philippians 4.8. We're also to be sober, all right, which literally means, I'm telling you, not drunk. Duh. All right, but that's what it means symbolically for us, spiritually speaking, it's to be self-controlled and to think clearly. Think clearly. I don't like anything that takes away my clarity of thought. Seriously, nothing. I I don't want anything to take away my clarity of thought. Now, I'm not saying what I'm about to say to condemn anybody. I'm not. But I don't touch alcohol. Uh, Not privately, not publicly, not ever. Um... And it's been that way a really long time. Because I want a clear mind. I'm supposed to think soberly. I don't want the devil to slip up on me. I I don't want the wrong kind of thoughts to slip up on me. I want to be able to discern the times. I want the word of God to come alive to me. So I'm not saying, listen, please don't take this wrong. I'm just telling you my own testimony. That's all. You can do what you want. Chew the meat and spit out the bones. Right? But, uh, and I want to be able to say to anybody that's in Celebrate Recovery, for instance, if they were to come up to me and say, Pastor, do you, do you struggle with alcohol? I want to be able to say, no. Because I have another wine. Right? Right? It's called new wine. I'm going to move on. Please don't, don't take this wrong. I, I'm not, listen, I love you right where you are, and I'm not telling you you got to do what I do. But if, in case you wonder, that's what I do. Okay? Now, it says, those, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the, to the lusts that used to control you, as in your ignorance, when you were ignorant about spiritual things. As the Bible so often teaches, we're not to uh, allow ourselves to be shaped and molded by this current culture, Lord, especially now. Our culture has gone wacko, banana, crazy. (laughs) Up is down, down is up, right is wrong, wrong is right, good is bad, bad is good. I feel like I'm in another world sometimes. So if ever there was a time you and I needed to be focused clearly on God and not be conformed to this world, to resist it every day, it's now. 
And as the Bible so often teaches, we're not to allow it. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We were, used to be ignorant, but no longer. Amen? Everybody say with me, I'm not ignorant anymore. Verse 15. But he, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, Peter is pulling straight out of Leviticus 11.44 here, which says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, God has called us Christians to live a clean life. Not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. Neither are you. That's why church is not perfect, because we're here, right? You want a perfect church, empty it out and just leave chairs. Then you've got a perfect church, right? No muss, no fuss. The command to be holy sounds daunting, right? But here's the deal. God's commands are always accompanied with his enablings. Always. So he never calls us to something that we cannot do in his power. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can live a clean life through Christ. Can we say that together? I can live a clean life through Christ. Absolutely. Not perfect, but clean, right? I mean, right? I mean, compared to you, the world, the, what they're living in, what they're being taken by, it breaks my heart. I pray. I pray for revival. I pray for awakening because our world is so deceived right now. There's a reason the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live a clean life. And what's living inside of you right now? God's Spirit? True, but God's what kind of spirit? Holy. So it makes sense that the first thing he's going to want to do is get us holy along with him. Verse 17, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now that's not the word phobos meaning terror or tormenting fear. But it means you have an awesome respect for God and his call on your life and his call to live a clean life. All right? You have respect. In order to live holy, look what he says. If you call on the Father, how do you live holy? You got to call on the Father. Peter's stressing a life dependent on the Father's help. You can't live holy without the Father, neither can I. Hebrews urges us to do this regularly. This is one of my favorite verses. Let us therefore come boldly. Let's read this together. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find the grace for what reason? To help us in time of need. I pray this all the time. If Jeff Wickwire needs anything every day, it's mercy. I don't want justice. Justice, I'm all smoke. I want mercy. I need mercy. How many of you need mercy and not justice? Right? Because if we got justice, we'd be in real trouble. But I want mercy. And then on top of mercy, I want grace. And I pray that all the time. I pray it all the time. This verse. I love that verse. So we serve a Heavenly Father who is approachable and readily gives us mercy and not justice. And grace, which is the enabling to do His will. Amen. Peter also mentions having a healthy fear of God. 
Not terrified fear, as I already said, not tormenting fear, but reverential, respectful fear. Why? Because without partiality, he judges according to everyone's work. Nobody, nobody, nobody is God's favorite except Jesus. Okay? God judges people by what they do and what they say. He has no favorites. If you're a president or a pauper, it doesn't matter. God judges everyone by their works, and we reap according to our works and words. So as Christians, we should do and say as those who are aware of being watched and heard by the living God. I have a little saying, what's the fear of the Lord? It's the continual awareness that God is watching and weighing every one of my thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. That's the fear of the Lord. Okay? So I'm always trying to keep an awareness. Wow, what I said, he heard. What I did, he saw. Any attitude I'm copying, he's aware of it. Okay? That's the fear of the Lord. And and so I'm I'm in respect of God. I'm not in dread, terror of God, but I respect the Heavenly Father. And if I sin, and we all will and do, I take it to Him. And I say, forgive me. And I do it quick. Amen? Everybody with me tonight, say amen. amen. Okay, we're coming towards the end. 18 and 19, knowing. Everybody say knowing. You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's what redeemed you. Peter points out the only currency that can save us is the shed blood of Christ. Amen? That's the only currency that can save us. Hebrews says, with his own blood... Not the blood of goats and calves like in the Old Testament. He entered, that is Jesus, the most holy place once for all and secured our our redemption forever. He never has to do it again. It's done once for all. He indeed was foreordained. Well, there's a million dollar theological word. Verse 20, before the foundation of the world, he was foreordained, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, here's a mind bender we got to accept what the Word tells us because it's hard to wrap your mind around this. But it's telling us before the world was created, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost had a meeting. They knew man was going to fall. Jesus stepped forward and said, I will die for them. And it was decided in eternity's past, so that when Adam fell, God was not shocked. He wasn't surprised. He knew it was going to happen. They had already, the Godhead, had already planned way ahead of time for that moment. So before God stooped down to fashion Adam out of clay, before he flung the stars into space, before he ever said, let there be light, Jesus had already said, I will go for them. 
and I will die for them. He did it before time began. Everybody say mind bender. It's a mind bender, but it's true. Because God doesn't inhabit time. We do. Everything in our world rots, rusts, decays, falls apart. <laughs> have you looked in the mirror lately? <laughs> right? Say, so, where'd that come from? How many of you have talked to a mirror and said, when did you warp? <laughs> right? But have you noticed everything? It's entropy. Second law of thermodynamics, entropy. It says everything is decaying. Everything is winding down. The only thing not winding down, the only thing defying entropy is your inner man. Because it says our inner man is renewed day by day. Day by day. Though the outer man perish and rots and decays and gets worse and oh my, the inner man is renewed day by day. It's the only thing in God's world that is daily renewed. Everything else is experiencing entropy. It's on the way down. Verse 21, who through him we believed in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that we believe in the God of the Bible. Amen. God raised him from the dead so that our faith would rest only in him. My faith isn't in Jeff. It's not in politics, not in anything. My faith is only in the one who got up from the dead. Amen. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls, how do you purify your soul? Watch, in obeying the truth. Through the Spirit's help, in sincere love of the brethren. What a loaded verse. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now Peter is directing our attention to the role of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Now we're coming to the close here, but I want you to say with me, sanctification. What is it? What is sanctification? Okay, our souls are purified. How? How do we get pure? By obeying the truth of Scripture. How do you obey it? By the power that the Holy Spirit gives you. Through the Spirit, through His help, His strength, His peace, His enabling, that's how we walk in biblical truth. And as we walk in it, it's purifying our mind, our will, and our emotions. That's the soul, suke. That's the Greek word. Your soul is your mind. It's your will. It's your emotions. It's that you part of you, your personality. That's your soul. And how's it purified? By obeying the truth through the power of the Spirit of God. Y'all are quiet tonight. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit's work of setting us apart from the world. How does it happen? Obeying the truth through the power of the Spirit. How many of you had a choice today to either go with the world or go with God? Come on, tell the truth. Okay, yeah. So how did you obey God? Through the strength and power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. Did you not? Yeah. All right, now there's two kinds of sanctification, and I got to do this before we close tonight. Here it is. There is positional and practical. Everybody say positional and practical. Two kinds of sanctification, setting aside. Positional sanctification has to do with our standing before God in Christ, what He has done for us, who we are in Him. 
Who are we in him? A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a called out people that we should show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? Now, uh, but it's positional. It is, it is what God has declared you to be. See, when God looks at you and me, he's got on sunglasses. S-O-N. Glasses. He sees you through the sun. He sees you through the sun. So what does that mean? He doesn't see the imperfections, the flaws, all the things that you're always beating yourself up over. No, because the blood has covered you. That's positional sanctification. In God's eyes, we are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And when he looks at us, he sees, now I'm not telling you you're a little God. Ain't none of us a little God. But I'm saying to you, he sees you through the lens of his son's shed blood. So he sees you like he sees him. But then there's practical sanctification. And practical sanctification has to do with our daily walk, which is often imperfect. I was imperfect today. What about you? Oh, I was definitely imperfect today. I got impatient with some things. Um, Irritated with some people about some things. Irritated with myself about some things. Kind of beat myself up over a couple of things and then realized, I'm not going there, devil, leave me. But I was doing it. I'm so imperfect. I'm so flawed. I'm not what I used to be. But I'm not what I'm going to be. I'm a work in progress, and I've learned i got to be patient with me because he's patient with me. But I'm so glad for practical sanctification, and I'm really glad for the positional sanctification because as I'm trying as God's child to grow and develop and be like Jesus, I'm falling and skinning my knees from time to time. And, he, and he's working with me. So we sometimes stumble and fall. Can I have an amen? amen. Well, that was a good amen. And, and we succumb to temptation. Anybody, anybody uh, 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 succumb to temptation yet in 2023? Oh, and the rest of you, look at you. You just now succumb to the temptation to lie. So here's practical sanctification is the growing up in Jesus process. All right? It relates to our ongoing spiritual growth. That's practical That's what the Holy Spirit was put in us to bring about. Uh, So by the Spirit's power, we daily step more and more in line with positional sanctification. It's called growing up, maturing. Sure, I still mess up some, but not like I did 20 years ago. Are you with me? Because I'm growing. How about you? Are you growing? Come on. The Spirit of God convicts us of our sins. We turn to Christ for forgiveness. And with the forgiveness comes a fresh commitment to God's will and plan. And through this ongoing process, we grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. Peter notes that as we grow in sanctification, we also grow in love for the brethren. Now listen to this. Pure hearts love best. 
The more pure we get by obeying the truth through the help of the Spirit, the better we can love. Because pure hearts love best. We're commanded to love one another fervently. Well, I don't see that in church a whole lot of the time. It's more like I can stand them for a church service, then I'm out of here. And I've had people tell me, I just can't go anymore. It's full of hypocrites. I'm just going to be out here just loving Jesus on my own. I say, okay, you are being a hypocrite out there loving Jesus on your own. Because you say you love Jesus, then you're telling me that you are going to go against his word in your lifestyle. Because the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Come be a hypocrite with all the rest of us. We all love one another, and we all mess up from time to time. Verse 23, having been born again, how were we born again? Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. He uses the word born again which we should never lose the wonder of. Are you with me? We should never. Think of where you were. Think about it. And look where you are now on a Wednesday night, sitting in a church building. What happened to you? By a literal miracle of God, we have received a brand new divine nature. We've become members of the royal family in heaven. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We become joint heirs with Christ. We rank higher than the angels. Born again, born from above, born twice. Thank God. Amen. How did it happen? The incorruptible seed of the word of God. The incorruptible seed of the word of God The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. The fall of man. Think about this, and and we're at the end here. But think about this. The fall of man began with the failure to believe God's word. Didn't it? Eve believed a lie from the devil. Oh, God's holding back from you. God, God doesn't want you to have what he's got. She doubted God and doubted his character and doubted his concern and care and intent towards her. So she failed to believe the word of God, and down they went. How are you saved? When you believe the word of God. So the way man went down, he comes back up. The way he lost the garden, he does the opposite and regains the garden by believing the word of God. Amen? (laughs) Chapter 1 closes with a powerful word about the word of God. Let's see what it says, and I want you to read this out loud with me as we close. Verses 24 to 25. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Amen. 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 How many of you enjoyed that tonight? Isn't that good? Now, we're great with time. I want to take two questions somewhere in there. But if you've got a question tonight, something we've talked about, something we've said, theological questions, something about the Bible, then I want you to feel free to ask it. There's never a bad question, okay? Uh, If you've got a question about the Bible, you want to ask me something, raise your hand, and I I want to answer it as best I can. I hope that I can. I'll do my best. 
So let's, let's take the question. The cameraman. Do you believe in predestination, and where do you stand with Calvinism? <laughs> now, there's a question you could ask me at the beginning of the service, and I would need an hour. Uh, okay, do I believe in predestination? Yes. Do I believe in Calvinism? No. Now, a lot of you are going, Calvinism, what's that? Okay, quickly. The Bible talks about us being predestined. That's one of those million-dollar theological words. We've been predestined uh, to being a son of God, predestined to being saved, and, and whatnot. Calvinism, people that subscribe to Calvinism as it's taught today, believe some people were predestined to be saved, and some simply weren't. And if you were predestined to be saved, then you are going to come to Christ by way of irresistible grace. Okay? So if you're chosen to be saved by God, you're not going to be able to resist His grace. You will come. If you're not chosen, you won't come. Okay? Now, I can't... There's a lot of reasons I can't go there. And that's not all of Calvinism. That's just one of the parts where I have to say... Sayonara, that's not for me. Here's why. There's too many whosoever's in the New Testament. Whosoever will, let him come. It's not his will that any would perish, but all. How many? All would come to the knowledge of the truth. I can show you verse after verse that contradicts this notion that God uh, uh, picks some people like me or you. Why are you saved? Because he picked you. And you're, so you're gratefully picked. But if he hadn't picked you, you wouldn't be here tonight. You'd be out there lost and one day go to hell. Okay, that conflicts with the character of God I see in the Bible. Because for me, that makes God a monster. How, how can a God of love select people to go to an eternal hell? I just, that sticks right here, and that's as far down as it goes. I can't go there. You say, well, what about the word like predestined or chosen or elect? Here's the way I look at it. Let's say I came in here uh, next Wednesday night, and I gave all of you an invitation. The invitation was for the next Wednesday night, we're not going to be here. We're, we're going to be at a feast that I'm holding. And, and you're all invited. Every one of you has an invitation. And yeah, it's a little bit of a drive, but if you want to come, you're invited. Now, some are going to take that invitation, and they're going to be there. Others are going to say, you know, I just don't have the time. I've married a wife. I've bought a cow. I bought some land. Don't bother me. You know how Jesus taught that? Um, so I'm busy, busy. Maybe I'll catch the next feast, okay? Now, for those of you that accept the invitation, I have something planned that's going to blow your mind. It's going to be the feast of your lifetime. It's going to be Del Frisco. 
it's going to be, uh, it's going to be uh, all La Madeline's desserts, Del Frisco's steak. We're, we're going to have the feast and a great, great time together. And that's what I have predestined for you to experience if you accept the invitation. Are you with me? So when I say I've been predestined, I say, yes, absolutely. God has predestined me or for me. In other words, anybody that comes to Christ, we're going to the wedding supper of the Lamb, marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? And, and woe to those who don't accept the invitation. Jesus talked about this all the time. Go into the highways and the hedges and invite them to come, that my feast is full. He, it was all about invitation, not irresistible, I'm going or I'm not. It's an invitation. I don't know how I could preach and offer salvation to the, to the whole sanctuary and everybody on radio all over the country if, if I was sitting there thinking, well, some of them have no hope no matter what they hear because they're not chosen. No, i got to know. i got to know. They were all handed the invitation, and they can all come. <laughs> okay. So I can't, that's why I can't go with it. Does that help? And that's in a nutshell, folks. I could spend a month talking about Calvinism because the, the opposite is Arminianism. If you're Arminian, that's, you believe that anybody can be saved, everybody can be saved. And there, there's, listen, I don't want to be a Calvinist. I don't want to be an Arminian. I want to be a Christian. Christian. So that's where I am with that. Anybody else? Yes. yes. Um, can you explain um, explain how the Lord allowed the dead to come back and visit King Saul? Uh, Wait, which say that last said, part again. The, um, how the, the Lord came back, uh, the Lord allowed King Saul to come back and visit Oh, the Sam- witch of, of Endor. Samuel. Yeah. You mean Samuel. Samuel, yes. Okay. And But in Luke... The rich man wanted to send a message to his brothers, but Abraham said that it was a great gulf fix, and he couldn't pass through. So I know the Lord can do whatever he wants to do. He's omnipotent. You know what I'm saying? Okay, you're talking about two different things. Yeah. Okay, so you're talking about Hades, uh, because that's Jesus' parable, the rich man that died and went to Hades. Right. Okay, and... um, then he looked across a great chasm and saw his former servant sitting in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man who had lived sumptuously his whole life, but he had lived for himself and not for God, died in his sins. And he went to Hades. Hades is not hell. Hell is Gehenna. That's the lake of fire. Hades is like a waiting place. Okay? Hades is sort of a the final stop before the lake of fire is where you sit in torment until the great white throne judgment where where you and the devil and false prophet and antichrist are all cast into the lake of fire. Nothing's in the lake of fire right now. Nothing. So, the rich man looks across and sees his servant in Abraham's bosom and he just wants some water on his tongue, the rich man. 
And he is told, there's a great chasm between you and Abraham that you cannot cross. In other words, once you die in your sins, that's it. There's no purgatory. That doesn't exist. That's made up by the Catholic Church way back in the Dark Ages. There's no purgatory. Okay? When you die, that's it. It's given into a man to die once, then the judgment. That's it. Whatever condition you die in, that's the condition in which you will meet God. So if you die without the blood covering your sins, you alone are going to answer for your sins with no one standing with you. And don't tell me you're going to get together with all of your buds and your pickups and your beer in hell and have a great old time in hell. You're not going to know anybody in hell. You're going to be suffering in hell. So here's the deal. The reason they couldn't cross over is because once you die, it's too late. You, you can't go over. He said, well, let me go tell my brothers. Let me go back to earth and tell my brothers about this terrible place. And the bottom line, he was told, if they don't believe one who rises from the dead, they won't believe you. Jesus was saying, if they don't believe my future resurrection, they won't believe though somebody came back from the dead like you and told them. That's that. Now, the other question was Saul. Saul and the uh -huh. witch of Endor. Okay, here's the end of Saul's life, quickly, and then we're going to go. Here's Saul. It's the end of his life. He's been tormented by demons. He's been chasing down David for a decade. Uh, he's totally, totally backslidden, out of it, gone. And he comes to the end. He doesn't know what to do. He's in a terrible battle with the approaching Philistines. He's lost touch with God. God won't talk to him. He, ta he, he says, I've called out, but God won't talk to me. So he goes to a witch. Now, he had already kicked all the witches out of Israel. So what does he do? He goes to one of them. And she says to herself, that's the man. I know him. And she said, I'm not going to do this for you. Call up Samuel because you'll have me executed. He said, I promise. Call him up. Now, here's one of the mysteries. We know that you cannot contact the dead by seances there's no ghosts walking around with unfinished business. No, no, I'm just telling you. Because I get these calls on at radio, on the radio, I get them. People seeing, you know, Uncle Joe, there he was. He's been dead 10 years, he's, he's got unfinished business. No, you're not seeing Uncle Joe. There's no ghosts walking around, phantoms, spirits of people you know, there's no zombies, though I know some of you would disagree with that based on who you're around sometimes, but here's the deal. There's not. There's not. So, you can't call the dead up because it's not in your power to do it. God is God of the living and the dead, the Bible says. You can't call them up. You get into a seance or use a Ouija board to call up Uncle Fred or your deceased spouse, something like that, if you come into contact with something talking to you or you see something, it's not them. You've come into contact with a demonic world. But here's the deal. Then how in the world did this witch of Endor conjure Samuel? Because she did. He showed up. 
and talked to Saul and predicted his death. Samuel predicted his death and said, now, and he says, why'd you trouble me? I was fine. You should have left me where I was. Why'd you? And so, how did it happen? I got to tell you, I've wondered about this a thousand times. For some reason, God allowed Samuel to see and talk to Saul after he was gone. Now, lest you stumble over that, remember the Mount of Transfiguration. Who was there? Christ in the middle, Moses here, Elijah here, and they've been gone a long time. How'd they appear? God let them. Okay? So, the rule of thumb is, there's no Bible mandate given for us to call the dead up. It's not there. It's not going to happen. You're going to come into contact with a bad spirit. Why it happened in that one instance, I don't know. And maybe it wasn't even the witch that did it. Maybe God just said, Samuel, go tell him. He dies tomorrow. We don't, I mean, the Bible intimates it was the witch, but who knows? We don't know. But you can't take that one isolated instance and then say, here's what we do, and then I'm going to close, but here's what we do. We'll take an Old Testament, something that happened, or even New Testament, we take one event, and it's only a description of something that happened then and there, and we make it a prescription for us. Well, since it happened to them, then it will happen for me. But sometimes the Bible is only giving us a description of something God did, and it's not supposed to be a prescription for us to go after the same thing ourselves. Okay? All right, let's stand together. Boy, I could do this all night long. (laughs) We could have a marathon some night. But are you with me about the description, prescription? Like Jesus spit in the dirt and made mud and put it in somebody's eyes. Can I tell you, don't do that. That's a description, not a prescription. You're gonna get, you may get your lights knocked out if you do that. All right, let's thank the Lord. Father, we just thank you right now. We praise your name. Lord, thank you for your blessing. We just thank him, church. Isn't God so good? His grace is so good. His mercy is so good. Lord, bless the people as they go. Lord, I pray your favor, that your face shines upon everyone and those watching from home right now. Bless them. And thank you for the good grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the work of sanctification. Amen.